We'll read Romans 7, 1 to 6. United in Christ or united to Christ. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Amen. The Apostle Paul, since Romans chapter 6, has been introducing the need, the theological and practical need for sanctification or holiness, righteousness, godly living, obedience, faithfulness. These are words used to describe the way of the Christian life after his conversion, after he has received eternal life, after the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in him. He has been arguing from chapter 6 and he will continue through chapter 7 and even chapter 8 on this very subject, the need for sanctification. After establishing the fact that we are united to Christ in chapter 6, he continues this argument. He is a brilliant logician. And so with his argument, theological argument, he's now illustrating in verses 1 to 6 with the practice, the tradition, the institution of marriage between husband and wife. He illustrates in verses 2 and following. So let's pick it up at verse 1. Verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Firstly, he asks this question, do you not know? You know that the Apostle Paul, just like the Lord Jesus and like the prophets, they will often address the people and say, do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not read? This should be obvious to you. It should be self-evident to you what I'm about to say. I shouldn't have to say it because it should be obvious, either based on common sense, natural law, the law written in the heart, Romans 2, 14 to 16, either common sense in the natural law, the conscience, the law written in the heart from Romans 2, or it should be obvious from the written word of God. And in this case, he is talking, I think, about the written law of God. But whatever he means, he's talking about the obvious truth of what is either written in the heart or written in the law of God. And these two are in harmony. What's in the heart and what's written in the law of God are in harmony. So we should know it. It should not be a surprise to us. His illustration, his analogy 
should not confuse us. It should not trip us up. It should not cause us to stumble. In fact, it should reiterate and emphasize what he is arguing here. And he says, so verse 1, I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, from this phrase, it's most likely the case that he is speaking of the written law of Moses. You who have it in your hands, you who have heard it read day after day, week after week, whenever you you come to worship, you who have access to it constantly, you who teach it especially, the teachers of the law. Don't you know this? I shouldn't have to say it. You should know what's written there. And what is it? That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That's an obvious truth. It's a fact of life. First, a clarification. If your Bible in verses 1 to 3, verses 1 to 3 uses a small l, a lowercase l for law, I believe it should be an uppercase or capital L. Because he's not referring to laws generally, though many countries have laws that fit this. He's not talking about laws generally worldwide, but he's talking about the law, specifically the law of Moses. And because he's speaking of the law of Moses, it should be a capital L in verses 1, 2, and 3. Your Bible may or may not do so. I believe it should do so. And then in verse 4, notice that the Bible that we're using, the New American Standard Bible, in verses 4 to 6, it does capitalize the L. It does capitalize the L, but I don't think the apostle switched from general laws to the specific law of Moses. I think he always had in mind from verse 1, 1 to 6, the law of Moses. And why would it be capitalized? Capitalized because we're talking about a specific person, place, or thing. It's a proper noun, therefore the specific law of Moses. So, in the law of Moses, when we read the law of Moses, does it not have jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Correct? As long as one lives, whatever the law says applies to that one. Is that correct? That's correct. No one can dispute that. No one can dispute that. The laws apply to people while they live. Now, I know that in modern days there are exceptions to that, such as when politicians, when politicians have estate taxes on the deceased and then force the deceased with estate tax to pay the government a huge sum of money in taxes or whatever they call it in order to uh, fund their Um, their agenda. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about in common sense usage of laws and in uh, particular the law of Moses. It only applies to a person when he is alive. Okay, now why does he say this? Why does he say it? Verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband While he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Is that not true? It's true in the law of Moses. It's true there that 
The husband and wife are to be married until death. The death of one releases the other, the survivor, from the obligation of the vow, the covenant before God that was made upon marriage, right? On the wedding day. So those vows that were made make the two, the husband and the wife, accountable to each other and bound to each other until one dies. That is the law. That is clearly in the law of Moses. If anyone doubts that, let's turn to our Lord in Matthew 19. Matthew 19. There were some who were trying to budge and nudge and manipulate the law for their own selfish ends. But Jesus confronts them. Matthew 19 Matthew 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, 3. We'll read 3 to 9. 3 to 9. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another, commits adultery. They want to know if divorce is permitted for any reason. And he says, no. From the beginning, from Adam and Eve, God intended that husband and wife remain together until death. And no one should separate them. And because of the hardness of heart, because of sin, and because of immorality, verse 9, it is permitted for this reason. Divorce is permitted for this reason, but not any other reason, which is what the Pharisees wanted. At least some of the Pharisees wanted that for any other reason to divorce their wives. Especially, actually, the Sadducees wanted it. The Sadducees wanted divorce to be permitted for any and every reason. And perhaps the Pharisees are asking because of that, because there had been some animosity between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two main groups among the religious authorities of the day. So Jesus says they should remain together. And Paul the Apostle, he explicitly says, until the death of the one. But what happens while the two are alive and... One is joined to another. Look at Romans 7, 3. 7, verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. When the husband is alive, if she goes to be with another man she would be called an adulteress. 
At the beginning of John chapter 8, we have the incident of the adulterer and the adulteress. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Remember also John the Baptist. John the Baptist railed against Herod because Herodias was married to Herod's brother, and yet she was with Herod. And he said, it is not lawful for you to have her. It's not lawful for you to have her. And in the Old Testament, of course, the major example is David. David was already married. Bathsheba was already married. And yet David and Bathsheba came together and they were adulterers and adulteresses or adulterer and adulteress. So that's contrary to the will of God to commit adultery. However, if the husband dies, then she is free to remarry. And that is clearly evidence in Scripture. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, uh, of a widow, if her husband dies, she is free to marry, however, only in the Lord. Marry in the Lord. A believing widow, if her husband dies, she is free to remarry in the Lord. That is uh, a believing or a Christian husband. That's permitted. We note um, also in 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 16, there were young widows who were not remarrying, but stirring up trouble in the church. And so he urged them to remarry, bear children, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. So remarriage because of a deceased husband or in the case of a husband, remarriage in the case of a deceased wife, remarriage is permitted. If one is a Christian, then marry in the Lord. That's what he's asserting in verse three. Now, why this illustration? Why the illustration verse four picks it up? Therefore, my brethren... You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Why this illustration? Why this comparison to marriage? Because we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. By body of Christ, he's not speaking of the church, though there is a connection to the church. By the body of Christ, he means by the death of Christ on the cross. His body died. In chapter 6, we identified with his dead body. Remember that? In chapter 6, we are united to him in his dead body. So because he died, then therefore... What he accomplished on our behalf in relation to the law has been done away with. It's been abolished. It's been destroyed. And what was that? The law had a curse on us. The wrath of the law was against us. Because of our old man, the natural man, the flesh, whatever the law rightfully had against us to put us to death, to eternal death, 
What that law rightfully had against us no longer applies to us. No longer applies because we have identified by faith in Christ's death. We have identified with that body of Christ. Therefore, what Jesus accomplished for us, we receive. We are beneficiaries of what he has done for us. There's no longer a curse on us. No longer a sentence of death on us. We're no longer dead in trespasses and sins. That is what God has done for us in Christ. And why did he do so? Not only did he accomplish that by the death of Christ, the purpose was that you might be joined to another. Who is the other? The other is Christ. Him who was raised from the dead. We were made alienated from the law, the curse of the law on us, so that we might be joined to the life of Christ, He who was raised from the dead, and therefore we have life in us. That's why chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We now have life. The eternal life has been given to us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are forgiven of sins. All of this has been accomplished because now we are joined to a new husband. We had an old husband, a ruthless husband, a husband that was full of justice without any mercy. But now we are alienated or separated because of death to that first husband as the people of God, the body of Christ the church. We are alienated now from that, separated from that death. Now we have a new husband. That new husband is Christ. And he has been raised from the dead. That's why no one can ever separate the death of Christ from the resurrection of Christ. We must believe both in his death, the purpose of his death, and also in the purpose of his resurrection. So what is the purpose of his resurrection? In reference to us, verse 4. That we might bear fruit for God. That we might bear fruit for God. We must produce fruit. This fruit must be evidenced in our life if we truly belong to Christ. If we have been joined to Christ, if we are united to Christ, then we bear fruit for God. That is the result. That's the consequence. That should be demonstrated in our life to bear fruit. We might ask, what is this fruit? What does the true fruit look like? Chapters 12 to 16 of Romans explains that. Romans 12 to 16 explains it. Also, another place that explains it is Galatians 5. Galatians 5, it mentions the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are a few of the places, or a couple of the places, where the Bible explains what true fruit is. We must know the difference between true fruit and false fruit. 
right? Good fruit and bad fruit or rotten fruit. And therefore, here in verse 4, he says, this is our purpose. Does this not remind us of how he began in chapter 6? Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? We can't still live in sin, Romans 6, 1 and 2. We can't still live in sin. We must now start to reject sin. When we first understood the gospel, the true gospel preached, we began to understand our sin in relation to God's word, God's will. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, we pursue holiness. Not unholiness or wickedness, not rotten fruit, but good fruit. And it's for God, for the glory of God. We used to live for our own glory, our own reputation, our own honor. But now we don't live that way. We live for the glory of God, for His honor. We live for Christ, to exalt Christ, to honor Christ. Because now we bear the name of Christ. We used to bear the name of Christ either not at all or superficially, but now in reality we bear his name, therefore our life must be different to glorify God. Verse 5, Romans 7, 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The comparison. Remember, the scriptures are always, from the beginning till till the end of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures are always comparing and contrasting everything in our life, or the Christian life, and the way the world is. Compare and contrast. Light, darkness, good, evil. Right here, he says, the flesh, the sinful passions. But then in verse 6, he's going to speak of Newness of the spirit, a contrast. Well, first the negative in verse 5. While we were in the flesh, what did we have? The flesh. Remember, the flesh is not referring to our physical body, though the physical body is used by the flesh. It's referring to our old nature, the natural man, the sinful man, the sinful nature. This flesh has sinful passions. Passions can be either sinful or good. But these are sinful passions, sinful desires, sinful lusts or lusts. That's what we have in the flesh and we used to pursue in the flesh. Now, he says in 5, which were aroused by the law which were aroused by the law. Is he blaming the law when he says the law aroused the sinful passions? No. He's not blaming the law. He's explaining the dynamics and the relationship between the flesh and the law. To illustrate, when parents tell their children, do not go over there. It's dangerous. Then the child hears that word and then the child goes there to the danger. 
Is the parent to be blamed for the warning? No. The parent is not to be blamed for the warning. The child is to be blamed for going there when the parent said, do not go there. But once the child hears, do not go there, the child's sinful passions, the the child's flesh rises up, controls and consumes him, and then he wants to do that which is disobedient to his parents. The parent's not at fault, the child is at fault. We might also illustrate with the sunlight and a, uh, a pile of filth outdoors. A pile of filth. Let's say uh, flesh, the, the, the carcass of a, uh, an animal. That when the sun rises and the sun's heat and rays are shining on that carcass, is the sun at fault for creating the smell that comes from the carcass? No. The sun is not to be blamed. The the problem is with the carcass. It's a dead animal. The dead animal is the source of the problem. The problem is not the sun. The problem is the carcass of the animal. So in the same way, there's no problem with the law. We cannot blame the law for anything wrong, anything evil. Let's look at verse 7 to reiterate this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive. Apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. That through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He clearly says the law is holy Righteous and good. He mentions how good the law is. The law has a purpose, but what the problem is, is sin in us. The purpose of the law is to show that sin is utterly sinful. That's the purpose, to make this contrast. Now verse 6, Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We have been released from the law. We died to that by which we were bound. What is this bondage and what is this release? What is the bondage we had and what is the release or the freedom we now have experienced? The bondage is bondage to sin 
and the curse that is over us that we deserve because of sin. We are enslaved to sin, and the commandment, the law, it is a threat to our sin. And that threat is death, eternal death. That is what he means there in verse 6. That used to be the case with us. It's no longer the case with us. Now that we're in Christ, we're united to Christ, we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. We don't serve in oldness of the letter in that we don't have this fear of death. We don't have the sentence of death. We're not in bondage to sin. And what, whenever we read the law and whatever it stipulates, we don't live in fear and terror of that condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the experience we now enjoy. We have newness of the spirit, not oldness of the letter. He means it in that way. Now, because we have a new nature, now that we have a new heart, now that we have been born again, now that we no longer have a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, we have a tender heart, now we want to know the will of God and do it. Now we have enthusiasm in learning the truth of God and we want to obey it. Now that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he causes us to not only understand the scriptures much more than we did before, and even accurately, inaccurately before, but he also gives us an overwhelming desire to follow it, to obey it, to know it, to do the will of God, to no longer consider it a burden. Because as Christ said, my yoke is easy and my load is light. Why is the load light and the yoke easy? It's easy because we have joy in following what the Holy Spirit teaches us and empowers us to do in the newness of the Spirit. He does not mean. He does not mean oldness of the letter. He's not saying at all, now that we're in Christ, everything we... Uh, is available to us and anything we do is not sin. He doesn't mean it. He does not mean now we can worship idols, take God's name in vain, break the Sabbath, dishonor our parents, murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, and covet. He doesn't mean we can do those things now. There's no way he means that. Any honest, unbiased reading of Romans whether this chapter or any section of Romans would never cause one to conclude that now as Christians, we are able to practice lawlessness. What is dubbed today as Christian liberty, what is popular as Christian liberty or Christian freedom, freedom in Christ, people use that word, they bandy it about, but they are abusing that phrase. It's a good phrase, but they have tortured it and hijacked it to promote lawlessness or antinomianism. That's what they have done with it. The apostle does not mean that, not at all. In fact, he's arguing against that very heresy. Who are we now? We're in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have a new husband. We have a new life. 
because God has changed our heart by the Spirit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.